All right, everyone, welcome back to the Second Shot All-American Golf Podcast. I am your host, Tom, here with the newly appointed head men's and women's golf coach of Mount St. Joseph University, Phil Gilmore. Phil, first of all, congratulations on the new gig. And I did want to ask, how did the fall season go for you? Thank you, Tom. Uh, the, f- the fall season was a blur. Uh, getting to know two teams instead of one and trying to figure out how things work at the college level you know it i had luckily i've had some learning curves um but i i couldn't be happier and just moving forward with the recruiting process and uh trying to build the program back to a uh, level that i expect it to be and where our alumni expect it to be love it um so Getting back to that, I mean, if our last episode was back, this was August, I believe August 1st or beginning of August, somewhere in there, uh, we had Luke Muller on uh, for who plays for Northern Kentucky University. Since then, uh, just like I said, we had uh, Phil started coaching at the Mount, so we just decided to, to take a little break uh, to have him get adjusted for that. Some other, some other life things uh, are, got in the way for both of us, but uh, we're happy to be recording some episodes again. Um, I did want to give a shout out. Uh, we did play in the, or I played in the Luke Muller golf outing. What a fantastic time they had. We played out at uh, the Count, Kenton County courses. If anyone listens to the episode, uh, they talked a lot about you know what they do and what they raise money for. They raised, I believe, over or close to a million dollars since the outing started, which is incredible. Uh, they had <laughs> they had three pins on every single green. <laughs> And you could just play I was to whichever. Ask you to bring that up. Yes. You could just, you could play to whichever pin you want. Uh, it was a fantastic time. I believe Tim, who was briefly spoke in the episode, uh, you know, he was talking at the beginning of the outing. He goes, "This is not a golf outing. This is a fundraiser. You know, like this is for to have fun. You know, we're not here to have people care about winning the golf outing or anything like that. We're here to raise money for some families who need it." And uh, that's what they did. It was it was seriously a, a really fun time. And I, you know, obviously I'm a big hardcore, kind of a hardcore golfer. You know, it you know it, sometimes it's tough not to be competitive, but uh, it was it was really fun. <laughs> <laughs> Very diplomatic of you, Tom. No, it, <clears throat> when we when we get the chance to play in events like that, you know, you you do it for the cause, and. Uh, very wonderful tournament that they run there and uh can't really call it a tournament it's a fundraiser i forgot yeah there you go so um I, i'm glad you were able to play in that and uh i would have if i was able to but um a great cause great family you know just great atmosphere yeah i mean obviously it, it obviously is a golf and it is a fundraiser too but I, I think he was just trying to set expectations and and 
it helped set my expectations and it helped me have a, a much better day because I knew what I was in for. So, Tom, would you break par almost every time if you had three pin placements on every green that you played? I don't. Th- maybe I don't. That doesn't make it. It does not make it as easy as people might think. It was. It was still. It honestly was not. I mean, it was a little bit easier, but I didn't honestly think it was that much different in terms of playing the scramble. You still had to make 10-foot putts, just like any other scramble you ever play in. You still got to drain the putts. I'd, oh, I was going to say I'd still be screwed. So <laughs> so today uh, we have our first ever returning guest, actually, Gary Lanham, uh, the author of Golf Reaches the Seven Hills. His book is out now. Um Joseph Beth Bookstores, he mentions the, uh, the Orange Fraser Press was the, I believe, the publication in Wilmington, where Phil's from. And, um, yeah, he, fantastic, just, we just got done recording with him. You're going to enjoy the interview. We, you know, if we repeated anything from the previous episode, go listen back to episode seven, um, maybe before you listen to this one, if you haven't already. Um, if not, you'll still get plenty out of this episode. That's perfectly fine as well. Um, and I did want to give him a shout out because... He was the GCGA Volunteer of the Year, which is a big deal because the GCGA, as we've talked many times before, does so many great things for golf here in the city, and their volunteers are very important to that. And for him to be the Volunteer of the Year says a lot. It's a very big deal, and uh, you'll see him out being a rules official at tournaments. You'll see him keeping up the pace of play and – he just he's got one of those special golf minds that Tom and I, as you will find out, love picking. Yep, absolutely. Um, so without further ado, um, please enjoy our interview with Gary Lanham. All right, everyone, please welcome back our, our first ever returning guest. Uh, he is the author of Golf Reaches the Seven Hills, Gary Lanham. Gary, how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful, thank you. Books are selling, and uh, they're jumping off the shelves, so I'm I'm a happy man. Good, good. Actually, that's where I wanted to start. First, before we get any further, how can people get the book? Where can they get it? Um, what, what do you suggest? Well, I, the first place I would go would be either to uh, our website for the uh, the publisher, which is orangefraser.com, or to uh, Joseph Beth if they want to just go up to the uh, – to a uh, store and, and pick one off the shelf. Uh, they've been selling great in both places. I've been doing a lot of book signings, at, uh, mostly at the uh, country clubs and the pro shops and also at Joseph Beth. So uh, maybe I might see some of you out there. But um, the main, main place would be uh, Orange Fraser and, and Joseph Beth. Or grab me on the, if they see me driving down the street, I got them in my trunk. So. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, I guess, uh, first, well, first of all, if anyone didn't listen to episode seven, Gary was on episode seven with us. Um, we did cover a lot in there. Uh, we try not to repeat ourselves. So go back and listen to that as well to get more information. Um, but my first question, Gary, and I didn't ask this before, and this is after I got a copy of the book, was there, what was the reasoning behind maybe doing the chapters the way they are? I know a lot of books, it's not like chronological to where it's just you're going year by year, going over information by information. You know, what what was the idea behind doing the chapters the way they are and spreading the book out in that way? 
It's a great question, uh, Tom. Uh, we looked at it both ways. We looked at it possibly being a chronological book, but uh, there was so many things that uh, were interdependent that uh, you would just keep reading this over again from decade to decade. And uh, uh, what I tried to do was look at the maybe 13 or 14 key issues or things that might occur and then treat those chronologically. So we did, for instance, treat the, uh, the public courses and the private courses in order as they, as they occurred. But uh, we tried to pick really the main things that, about golf that you see. What, you know, where's the little white ball bouncing around in the city? You know, whether it's miniature courses or, or driving ranges or, or uh, tournaments or wherever the case might be and, uh, and dividing it up that way. But I have to admit, we did look at that, trying to do a, just a standard history book, uh, you know, beginning of the war, the middle of the war, the end of the war type thing. And, and uh, uh, we felt this, this was going to be an easier one to read, actually, where you could pick it off the shelf and look at caddies or pick it off the shelf and look at um, media or whatever and just treat it as an issue. And just to get everyone caught up, we it would be the history of golf in the city of Cincinnati or Cincinnati general area between what years exactly again? It starts in 1890. That's the first time we could find golf actually in the newspaper. Uh, the first course was start started to be built in 1894, but it goes up through 1960. And uh, you know, the, the next question is, why do you end there? 1960 was considered the end of the classical period in golf, uh, where golf courses were built with uh, mule teams and and uh, architects did hand drawings. And by 1960, you go to the modern period, which is uh, color television, Jack Nicholas and Palmer and, you know, all Trevino and all of that began with television and in the media. So we stopped it at 1960, hoping that someone was going to pick up the baton and take it from there forward. But uh, um, we uh, decided to just uh, take it uh, at the very beginnings, try to eliminate any urban legends or any uh, misinformations and, and, uh, and document it and, and get it there. I just like to point out for people who are struggling with age, you know, if you're 61, you're part of the modern era. And I, I think that's a very big boost of confidence right there. There you go. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's all about perspective. Absolutely. You know, that's one good thing about writing the book and ending in 1960 is most of the people I'm writing about aren't, aren't with us anymore. So they can't argue with my, uh, uh, my, uh, I guess my observations. So, uh, uh, but uh, I remember 1960. I was caddying in 1960, so it's not that far back for me. So, what I'm sure during your research, you started piecing together. You know what these chapters were going to be. Was there a certain spot where you just it, it just dawned on you, like, hey, you know, I I'm researching uh, the the landscaping st types, uh, the requirements of keeping a golf course uh, playable. And then you run into all the different country clubs and the different ways that they uh, kept the, the grounds maintained. You know, I, 
did you start by just researching the clubs and then add, you know, uh, how they kept the greens maintained from there? Or did you just go by, oh, well, this is just going to be about landscaping. This is going to be about the greens keeping. So we're just going to start with the equipment and we're going to start with everybody keeping everything just intact, you know, at, it, it's it's a complicated question. But. No, I, I understand completely, Phil. I think, um, you know, when you look at the, the very beginnings of golf in the city, it was basically somebody taking a, a pasture or an open field and going out and drilling some holes, putting some tin cans or, you know, flower pots down in the holes. Maybe something you might have even done as a kid, you know, in the very beginning when you we're playing out in the backyard and making a putt-putt course or whatever. And the same things happened here. You had to find a, a lot. And uh, and the very first people uh, laid out the courses themselves, the members. And uh, that was the case until uh, Cincinnati Golf Club hired Bob White in 1895. And that really started when professionals got into it. And then Bob White himself would be the professional and he would teach everybody how to play, but he also built the clubs, made the made the golf clubs in his shop, and he also t- t- tended the ground. And he was a superintendent, so he was a one man show. There was, uh, and he would hire the the shepherds to bring in the sheep or bring in whatever it was that would cut the grass. And uh, so it was an it was a natural evolution from a one man show to um, getting more complicated. And again, some of the, the, the larger clubs, the more advanced clubs started hiring superintendents or groundskeepers. So, uh, but that didn't happen until, you know, maybe the late 19 teens and into the 1920s when there was a special superintendent. So it was, and then of course the equipment was changing all the time on how the course was built and how it was maintained in the early days that if you hear of Tom Bendelow, who was kind of the early star of the book and, and built uh, maybe eight or 10 courses around Cincinnati, um, he would go out with just some stakes and pound a stake in where the tee was and pound another stake where the green was and maybe one for a bunker or here, here or there. But um, uh, he would leave at that point in time, somebody would cut the grass with a, maybe a hand pushed uh, real more and uh make a green and uh and a tea and it was it's no more uh, difficult than that so uh uh but then again that evolved once you have that point then places wanted to have more professional uh installations and started so it, it was it was a great story in that period because there was a lot of evolution of thought and an evolution of engineering and and uh um soil science and everything else going on um just fertilizer is a good reason you know a good example in the beginning courses uh, were fertilized by the horses and mules that they had at the course <laughs> that were cutting the grass so uh you know sooner or later in the 1930s when they started putting tractors out on the course to do the grass cutting and the aeration now you had no fertilizer because you had horses and mules that were provided that before. And uh, so again, then someone had to come up with uh, chemical fertilizers to, you know, grow the grass correctly and better grasses that would handle 
you know, temperature and humidity in Cincinnati. So uh, it was a, uh, not a simple story. It was very complicated and um, amazing that it went on in 20, 30, 40 different places in this town and somehow got done, you know. Now, you mentioned his name there. Actually, something that stood out to me was the impact of Tom Bendelow on golf here in the city. Could you maybe elaborate a little bit more on, on his importance to golf here? Yeah, Tom Bendelow was a Scotsman. Uh, came over and, and uh, to study uh, in the United States, study agronomy, and, and uh, uh, basically uh, was working up east at uh, building some uh, – public golf courses, built a, a, a course at Van Cortland in uh, New York City or the suburbs of New York City, and uh, uh, somehow was hooked up with uh, A.G. Spalding of you know, Spalding Sporting Goods, who uh, wanted to put him out in the country and start building the game of golf, mainly because he wanted, you know, he was not a golfer himself, but Spalding was involved in baseball and football and anything that was going on in sporting goods at that time, and just felt that golf would be another good addition to the uh, portfolio that he was selling in his sporting goods stores. So anyway, um, Bendelow was hired and he became then a jack of all trades. He traveled probably uh, by uh, mainly, mainly by train, but he would get off the train at the train stop and go out and sell his services sometimes for 50 bucks, 75 bucks design two or three courses, get back on the train, go somewhere else. But he'd leave behind some instructions on how to play the game and uh, and what to do next. And, and then he took all the pictures and did everything for the Spalding Golf Guide, which we reference a lot in the book. And uh, he was basically the, the, the main person that sold the game to, you know, the nation. Uh, there were a lot of people building private courses and uh, on everything, but Bendelow was really, they called him the Johnny Appleseed of golf. He was someone who just went east to coast to west coast to, you know, north and south in Canada and uh, hundreds of courses, five or 600. I think uh, I talked to his uh, his uh, grandson who's trying to put together a, a listing, a correct listing of all his courses. And, uh, and it's just amazing the impact he had and the impact he had locally, you know, the, he did uh, Western Hills and he did Makatiwa's first course. He did Hyde Park's first course in Losanaville and all of these courses. And a lot of them have been changed now where you don't really see the Bendelow effect. But uh, um, if it weren't for he, um, uh, we would be, um, we would be in tough shape getting the game started. That's for sure. Say so he has a couple of nine hole gems in the town as well, especially in Fort Mitchell and um, and Wyoming. Wyoming. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And most most of the things that Bendelow did, again, he he kind of leave after the stakes were placed, and he would leave it up to uh, uh, the groundskeeper or the the local people to build the course itself. You know, with instructions on how to do it. Donald Ross later on, when he got involved, he wanted the construction also. So he would uh, hire the construction people and do all of the installations. At one time, he had 3,000 people working for him across the country building golf courses. Uh, Tom Bendelow was more interested in just spreading the word and getting more courses out there. And, uh, but uh, he, he, was, he was an amazing man. 
if it weren't for him, I'd, like I said, I think we would, uh, we would really not have built the game like we did. Gary, how much information did you already know prior to researching the book about just how rich in history Cincinnati golf is? Well, you know, it's funny. I've always been a history buff. I, I, I grew up um, dating myself now, but then when I was in high school it was the hundredth anniversary of the civil war. So there was just loads of history almost every day on television and books being written. And, and uh, it was, it was just a rich time for studying American history. And um, uh, we all took uh, history courses in high school and grade school, even and, and things like that. But um, I was always really um, interested in Cincinnati as a city. I've been here my whole life, and uh, but I did a lot of traveling and business and, and saw other cities. And Cincinnati had a, a unique uh, place because it was the first city founded after the Revolutionary War. It was the first big city founded. And uh, so it grew differently than Boston or Baltimore or New York or anything else. And and uh, uh, and we were had a unique geography. If you look at if you look at the uh, the geography maps of our city, um, you look at all the hills all around the basin, the, the downtown area. And if you look to, towards Kentucky, the same thing. We're hemmed in by hills because of the glaciers. And uh, if you want to get out of the city, you have to go up these hills. And, and uh, uh, that's really, again, how the, the title of the book came about. You know, you weren't going to build the, the golf course down on uh, 9th Street. You were, you know, you had to get up to where there was uh farms and and everything else so you needed the transportation to do that and uh, that wasn't the case in most cities you know in columbus that was not the case or cleveland or so we had to we had a geography issue to take care of uh, and uh not just for golf but for anything you know to get and uh so we were getting crammed in and crammed in farther and the, the air was getting dirtier and dirtier and it was uh kind of a, uh, a unique situation to uh, bring all of that engineering and, and inventions that were happening when, the, you know, we started getting electrical power where we could build streetcars and we could do some things to, to actually get up the hills and build inclines and, and things. Uh, uh, and that hit just at the same time golf did. It was kind of amazing. You know, <laughs> it was, it was, uh, Golf was coming here in the 1890s, and we were all of a sudden getting smart on how to move the people around and and do some other things. So it was really a neat neat experience. So were there any particular golf books that uh, helped influence any of the work that you were doing? I I know I'm a huge fan of Tom Coyne and his work with like a golf course, a course called Ireland. Now he just did recently a course called America. It kind of had like a similar vibe to what you were doing. Are there any books out there that were, you know, influence for you? You know, I, I accumulated a lot of books uh, during the time I was researching. And I'd have to say probably what I was looking for, um, as much as anything, was was uh, Scotland versus the United States in that early period. And uh, so I was concentrating really on that much. I wasn't reading too much on on uh, uh, you know modern more modern histories and things like that but that intersection between Scotland which was having its own set of problems over there you know there was famines and, and things and emigration was increasing so there was 
people who were leaving Scotland and we needed them over here for the game, needed them over here for a lot of reasons, but, uh, um, it was just a lucky break of, you know, I, I mentioned in the book that, uh, because of the cost of golf balls, believe it or not, in Scotland, there were only 18 courses left by 1850. They had all closed down because no one could afford the equipment. And the game was, you know, we might be doing curling today or, or croquet or something instead of golf, but until that got a purchase the ball came around. So, you know, just a lot of amazing intersections of uh, opportunity and, and history uh, made the story. But to answer your question, Tom, and which I kind of went, went around, uh, that's where I was looking mostly for was was uh, um, timelines and things. Where was this guy at this particular point in time? Why did he come here and things? Because that's where I was pretty much focused. So, uh, But I did do, read a lot of golf history books previous to that. And I bought a lot of uh, golf history books of other cities and uh, and. Uh, took a look at them and figured out what I wanted to do differently than, than most of them. Say so one of my favorite parts that you started bringing up in the book is I, <clears throat> I love transportation. So I, it, if it's about transportation, I'm all about it, but you stated transportation except on trains was slow. So courses need to be located near work centers and close to the city. I had, you look at where the current courses are located now and it's not very far from major traveled roads or I mean it when these country clubs were getting started it had to be right where the streetcars were so it that I didn't realize how integral to the success of a country club being able to get to the course was that big of an issue I didn't really consider that because money's money right oh absolutely and and uh you know prime example is hyde park country club which if you look at the very first time it was for excuse me built in 1909 was on marburg avenue and marburg avenue didn't have a streetcar but their property uh for the hyde park did go through back and 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 abutted up to erie avenue which had a streetcar so when it came time to build the new clubhouse where are you going to build it? <laughs> You're going to build it on the streetcar. So you move the clubhouse then over to, uh, you know, from what was a mansion of a, of a local uh, uh, gentleman and, and, and move it over and build your new clubhouse on Erie Avenue where you get perfect access, not just for the players, but you'd had to get work staff there and stuff. So um, it was important. So all of the club, all of the clubs built early on were built near streetcars and, um, uh, it was about 1930 when the automobile was now starting to really take over that you hit, could build clubs away from streetcars. And Summit Hills was a good example. Kenwood, uh, Camargo, some of the other places that you know now could be located uh, near roads that you could get to by automobile. But transportation played an, am an amazing part of this story as it did, it did in other places. Speaking of transportation, that was one of my favorite things that I discovered in the book. I did not know that Santaville originally was in the middle of a racetrack. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, I didn't, I, uh, until I started eating at Skyline over in Oakley, I didn't know there even was a racetrack there. So, uh, and there's still parts of it that are out there that, you know, where they, uh, where they took it down. And, uh, 
Yeah, that was a that was a great story too. The Globe Wernicke, which was a big manufacturer of office furniture over in Norwood, and the guys were out playing in the backyard of the plant and and uh, decided to start a club and and grab that infield property. And uh, the story was that the races were so fixed, and uh, you know the uh, Ill, all of the bad stuff that you could think of around a racetrack was happening at that track, and eventually it it went under. But um, they were used it for automobile races. But then the people playing golf on the inside were uh, getting tired of all the noise and all the you know all of the stuff going on with the race, and uh, they decided to move up to Pleasant Ridge, and. Uh, get their property they're on now yeah and they used the uh did they they use was it under the grandstands was a locker room or something similar to that oh yeah they, they, yeah the locker room restrooms were their uh, or the yeah the grandstand locker restrooms and and uh, they had a locker room that was set aside for the players but uh you know again i think there was maybe 20 30 people in in the club at that time and uh I don't know what they paid in rent, but <laughs> for sure they could have all the fertilizer they wanted. That's for sure for the course. <laughs> yeah, I think they saw. I think I saw in the book it was like a ten dollar lease, like per member or something, something along those lines. Yeah, yeah, that was at that time. They in, in the early uh, late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, the most expensive club in Cincinnati was Avondale Golf Club, Avondale uh, Athletic Club, and the annual dues there were sixty dollars. And ten dollars more if you wanted to play golf. So, um, uh, you know that that was a year's salary for some people, unfortunately, back then. But it was, uh, you know, when you think in terms of uh, comparative numbers, it was pretty cheap. <laughs> so there are some very remarkable names that are connected to Cincinnati golf. I had no idea Patty Berg won the Western Open here in Cincinnati, and yeah. I had no idea or Sam Snead won the uh, Palm Beach Invitational here in Cincinnati. Um, can you talk to me a little bit more? I know you brought him up in our first interview, but I, I was fascinated, and Tom will be very fascinated because he's a Michigan man. But uh, Johnny Fisher, talk. Can you? Uh, what a remarkable like player and just person. You know, I just I enjoyed reading about him so much. Yeah, he was, you know, he was a cut above. He was obviously, I want to say obviously, but I think uh, people accept that he was probably the greatest player ever from this area. Uh, he won the U.S. Amateur in 1936 when the U.S. Amateur was equal to any tournament in the, in the country, in the world. And um, he was the last one to win with Hickory Sticks, with the Hickory Shafts. So he, he was an amazing player. He, he started off as a caddy at Western Hills Country Club and, and uh, uh, Ed Brophy, who was the pro there, um, more or less uh, treated him special as far as how he could keep getting it, uh, keeping his amateur status. When a lot of kids, uh, if you went into the pro shop and worked in the pro shop, uh, uh, you know, we, we would become a professional. So he was very protective of how he was uh how he was taken care of there. He was at Hughes High School, and uh, and he he and two other caddies from Western Hills basically led the uh, Hughes High School team to the uh, 1926 state championship, the first championship from a Cincinnati school. And uh, Johnny ended up 
graduating from Western Hills. Western Hills was being built at that time, and he transferred to Western Hills and actually graduated from there. And as you mentioned, went to the University of Michigan and um, was the star there and Big Ten champion. And uh, I mean, it's this is a guy who, again, learned the game while he was uh, a caddy. And uh, by the age 15, he was playing against the pros in some of the open tournaments and finishing in the top five. And, and uh, so he was really a phenomenon, uh, uh, just unbelievable in the city. And again, uh, one of the stories I tell when I started the book was uh, there's a little driving range down on Kellogg Avenue. And uh, here's a lake there and you can hit balls into the lake and I take my grandkids down. And uh, one time we were down there and I, I went into the, into the shop to get some more golf balls and, and the kid had a uh, Highland Country Club hat on. And I said, wow, Highland Country Club, Johnny Fisher. And he didn't know who Johnny Fisher was. And I said, oops, that's, that's the wrong answer. <laughs> I, gotta, I have to uh, make sure people figure out who Johnny Fisher was forever. So that was, he was, that was one of the seeds that started thinking about writing this book was that that little experience um but uh fisher then of course uh, went on when the u.s amateur uh, played in the u.s open many times and uh ended up being a, a personal friend of bobby jones bobby jones had just retired and uh he had, and bobby jones had a great friendship and johnny fisher uh would go down and set the pins every year at the masters as long as he lived and he ended up uh uh, when he won the amateur, he was a member at Highland Country Club in, in Kentucky, ended up at Cincinnati Country Club and um, just had a great amateur career um, and, uh, and a great, uh, uh, great career promoting the game. And his son, John Fisher III, uh, still a member at Cincinnati Country Club, is, is the, uh, a great historian, writes great articles about the history of golf and, and tells stories of him being down at the masters and as a little kid and meeting all of these people. So, uh, so the tradition continues. That kind of brings up the point of, I didn't realize there was also a lot of tournaments, like big tournaments. I didn't realize that Kenwood hosted the U S amateur and that Lasanaville hosted the, uh, was the, but the pro-am tournament that they actually televised like locally with like Jack Nicholas and Sam Snead. And I, I was blown away by seeing those like pictures and programs and it was awesome. Yeah, there there was a lot going on here with golf in the city, and and uh, again we 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 were kind of hamstrung because the summer season here is so hot and uh, and humid. So uh, the chances of getting a U.S. Open or U.S. Amateur were pretty pretty slim. If you look at all of the the names of the courses where these are being done, they're up east or Chicago or even Columbus and Cleveland, Minnesota. They were all northern places because they, you know, the weather was uh, congenial in the summertime. So we were um, we were kind of in bad shape of ever getting a tournament at that time of year. But um, uh, at the same time, there, the the pro am that you mentioned, Lance Sanaville, I think lasted maybe seven, eight, ten years, uh, and uh, some great players. Jack Nicholas won it as a pro and as an amateur in the pairings almost all the great players here locally played every year so they'd have fields of 300 people you know you know we have today 160 is a big field but they'd be teeing off from first thing in the morning to late late at night and and uh, uh, 
some local Tony Bloom had great results here. There was a lot of a lot of local players had some you know good opportunities here. So, uh, um, but that was that was a great tournament that Lasanoville put on for many many years. And then of course, like you mentioned, the Western Open in 1905, we had one of the at that time the Western. Um, the Western Golf Association, the WGA, the ones that do the Evans scholarships, they were in competition with the USGA. They ran two separate sets of rules, two separate sets of tournaments, and uh, everything, what was considered West was anything West of Buffalo. So um, th that's where the WGA <laughs> kind of, so the tournaments out here, except for Chicago, Chicago was kind of a little island uh, in and of itself in the USGA, but uh, um so the, that first 1905 WGA was big here. And uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's tough nowadays to, you know, to, to get any more majors because getting a major means you have to have uh, a resume for your course. So if you don't have a resume for your course, you can't get a tournament and you can't get a tournament because you don't have a resume for your course, you know? So it's, it's, uh, it's going to get tougher and tougher, but uh the LPGA is coming here next year at Kenwood, which is big. And, uh, you know, they were here back in the 60s um, uh, at Buckeye at, at Clovernook. So uh, it's good to have them back again. And, uh, of course, they played the LPGA tournaments up at uh, Kings Island. So it's it's going to be good to get them back. And um, um, we got a, we've got some good tournament courts, courses now. We haven't had any, you know, we built TPC and, um, you know, I think Stonelick could put a tournament on if it wanted to, you know, there's, there's some good venues now to make that happen. I started going into the rabbit hole. I, <clears throat> I started reading your private courses chapter and it, the private courses chapter folks is it's really fun with the history because of the people who began these, uh, or provided funding for these country clubs and anywhere from Kroger to Crosley to Proctor, you know, it, it's just the names go on and on here in Cincinnati, but there's a couple things that I really wanted to touch on here. I, I thought it was so interesting, Gary, that the Makatiwa is the only Ross course with holes nine and 18 being part threes. Out yeah. of all the ones he designed there. It's the only one. I have the list of all of them and I went over them and, uh, and I've, uh, I've found the ones that have nine or 18, but no one that had nine and 18. And, um, that is kind of amazing. It's, uh, but, uh, you know, that's, that's, uh, interesting. You bring Makatiwa up because I joined there about 20 years ago. And, uh, the story that I was told by people who were, you know, telling me to, to join or asking me to join were, um, Bendelo did one nine and Ross did the other nine. And we all accepted that. And, and I would have guests and I would say, yeah, look at the, the difference in this green and the green on the other nine, you know, how much they're different because Bendelo did one. Well, it was a complete farce. It was, that was not the case at all. You know, Bendelo designed the course first, but there were only three holes that were ever redone that Ross used. And actually Ross rotated the holes in a different direction than Bendelo did. So it was, you know, not even close that that story was correct. But um, so that, you know, uh, in writing the book, we came across a lot of things that uh, uh, just weren't true. And because it, you get urban legend started and everybody, you know, I mean, 
that's kind of what we were hoping to do with the book was get a, a baseline of, of what is reality and, uh, and start there. Another cool tidbit I saw was Coldstream, in order to use their logo, had that permission from the Queen of England. Yes, that's true. <laughs> if you've seen if you've seen the Coldstream logo, it's it's pretty yeah. impressive. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, but they had to go to England and uh, and get permission to use it. So it was, um, you know, well done. <laughs> God save the Queen. Yes, God save the Queen. Now, Gary, I'm going to put you on the spot here. I would like to hear you, and I, after all the research you've done, try to, I don't know, power rank or it, let me just give five, five of the more influential courses or more important courses to the history of Cincinnati. Whether they are ghost courses now or they still exist, is there, would you say there's like three, four, five that are like super important to the game and how it started here? Wow. Wow. Sheesh, Tom. <laughs> yeah. I'm, Sorry. <laughs> I I would say, you know, putting the ghost courses there is 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 important because uh there there were things that happened bef- that are not no no longer in place because of concrete and whatever. Um I I would say it would be the the first I'll start with the first course here, which was in that we know of was in, at the corner of Edwards Road and Grandin Road, which was Cincinnati Golf Club's first course. I don't even know if it was Cincinnati Golf Club at that time, but there was there was a course that was built there at that corner that is no longer there. It's a nice uh, subdivision area now, and the course moved to farther up Grandin Road. So I'd say that that would be you know one of the the courses that you would put on the list and say that it, that's a stepping stone. Um, uh, I'm, I'm going to jump all over the place here. Camargo, obviously, because of its uh, of its history and how it was built, and uh, uh, taking taking golf to really a U.S. Open level here locally, uh, which it, which we had never had, would be on that list. That's two. <laughs> Let me think here. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna stay in the in the uh, the time frame of my book. Uh, rather than you know anything that's new out there or that new, new that's been built, um, I would say you know maybe you might even think in terms of Coldstream because of uh, Dick Wilson was was at the top of his game at that time. He just finished uh, uh, Royal Montreal and 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 uh, uh, he he built the course. He probably was the last one that built the course and said this is the way the course is going to go instead of. Uh, we're going to go between uh, uh, lines of houses and stuff like that. So he was, he was maybe the last one to get to do that. You know, the more modern courses started with uh, lots. So, uh, so I would say that that would be a historically significant course at that time. Sorry, tough question. No, no, it is a tough course. Now, <laughs> You know, I say, you know, significant here locally, you'd have to, you know, because of Avon Fields, uh, you know, because of becoming the first public course. It was not the first public course west of uh, the Alleghenies, as we all f- hoped and prayed it was. But there was, there was hundreds of courses by the time Avon Fields got built. But that was a that was a change locally because of providing access to public uh, to the public. 
and not to the public as we know it today, but at least as close as getting it to the to the next rung of people who could play the game, you know, for fun and not have to join a club to do it. Um, so, you know, maybe that would, so then, uh, wow. Um, I, I did that, that fifth one. I'm going to hold it in, in the, in the bullpen and give it a little bit of fun. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of, of, of historical, you know, uh, historical uh, nature. Uh, you know, Kenwood, as you know, as you mentioned earlier, has had so many uh, great tournaments there, and and has has really done a good job of uh, uh, providing uh, the local people with uh, you know seeing some of the great golf and golfers of uh, through the years. So you know, but I'm it that that fifth one. I'm going to have to hold out in the in the corner here and. <laughs> And agree with everybody that comes up to me and say, "Yeah, I, I think you're right." <laughs> I think it's. I think it is pretty much. There's a. There's a ton of courses where I'm sure. Like I said, it's more of an opinion question. There's no, probably right or wrong. It's more of a toss up, probably between a few of them. Yeah, I. You know, I. I look at Cincinnati and, and around here, and and all of the architects that have been here. You know, Greg Norman lately, and and Arnold Palmer and Nicholas and. Arthur Hills and Michael Hurdson and all of all of the people who have been here lately and added to the the to the Bill Diddles and the and the uh, Langford Moreaus and all of the other people that uh, uh, had built the early courses. It's it's a really a broad brush of of uh, of uh, great uh, architects and and designers. Bill Jackson to me is is really one of the unsung. Uh, heroes of the of the book, uh, Bill Jackson, uh, as many know, uh, was a professional for a long time at Camargo, and actually finished the course when Seth Rayner passed away right in the middle of the project, and and uh, did a great job finishing up, redesigned a couple of the holes, um, but also designed Summit Hills and and uh, Potter Park and Hamilton, which it, for many many years was a prime. Uh, uh, public access golf for tournaments. Jack Nicholas played there many times, and uh, it, it was a uh, at one time was considered really a top top drawer public course. You know, it's uh, not considered that today. But uh, I've officiated it two years ago, and I've played it many times, and it's it's a great layout. You know, if it, um, but the Bill Jackson just. Uh, um, had a lot to do with the game of golf in Cincinnati. And, uh, and he was an expert, a national expert on, on soils and, and grasses and, uh, um, really is, is understated as far as what his contribution to the game was and designed many courses up, up, uh, Wisconsin way in Illinois, uh, in addition to the ones that he did here in Cincinnati. But, um, uh, I was most proud of, of, uh, finding out a lot about Jackson and, and, uh, and what he did here locally. Here, can you talk a little bit more about, um, when you, when you're reading through the public courses chapter golf and public golf in Cincinnati specifically, that, that was a tough bout to even get it going in the first place, wasn't it? It sure was, you know, that was again, during this period of, uh, uh we're talking about in the 1890s going into the 1900s, uh, Cincinnati, of course, was uh, run by a, a political machine, <laughs> Boss Cox, who, uh, you know, 
kind of gave government a bad name for a long time. And, and, uh, and there, there was really no interest or very little interest in Cincinnati into building public parks, not just golf courses. They didn't want to build any parks for recreation. So uh, it took a lot of uh, changes of attitude, changes of government, getting some people out of there to uh, provide uh, recreation for people just to make their life better. You know, whether it was baseball diamonds or playgrounds or picnic areas or anything like that, uh, this was a place where you, you work 70 hours a week and, and uh, you didn't have a whole lot of time for leisure. And uh, so the city fathers didn't have any, uh, you know, uh, I guess, foresight into thinking about, you know, not building another factory on the next lot there and, and putting a playground in for the people to make life better. So the, I'm not going to go into all the the the, uh, the timelines of what happened to make that change around, but Cincinnati today is one of the highest percentage of parks in their square, you know, in their, in their city area. So they've made a complete change to uh, making uh, recreation and parks a part of the city life. But it took a long time for that to happen. I'm a huge fan, of course, is that name their holes, Gary. Just <clears throat> tremendous fan, and I it makes me mad that more don't do this. But uh, looking through all your research and such, what were some of the favorite names of holes that you can think of, or wow, uh, if courses that give names to their holes are, well, are they favored or not? That's when I I'd have to pick up the book, but I uh, and and look at it because I think I mentioned hole names in. Uh, uh, at Makatiwa and at Lasanaville and uh, and at uh, Cincinnati Golf Club, I think those three. I know I had scorecards. I think in there with names on them, but I I remember the one that um, uh, that uh, at Makatiwa was called Westward Ho, and um, for those of you who played Makatiwa, there's there's two par fives on the back nine, 14 and 15. 14 goes out towards Paddock Road and then 15 comes back along a fence. And, and uh, uh, But at that time when Bendelow did it, uh, the green or the tee, excuse me, was down there where 17 green is. And, uh, and then it was a dog leg and it headed over towards where uh, 15 green is and then headed in the fence of the opposite direction. And they called that Westward Ho and it was over 600 yards. And then a lot of the courses at that time had a 600-yard hole on them. It was a kind of a thing in those days to have a 600-yard hole. But I just remember that name, Westward Ho, because there's a famous golf course called Westward Ho uh, that uh, uh, I'm sure it was named after. And um, and it was going west. So <laughs> I just seen. But I, I remember names like Alpine and, and a few other names that uh, from those three courses that were um, and I, I'm, I'm right along with you, Phil. I love na the names for holes. Even if you just put it on a sign at the T, you know, you don't have to put on a scorecard. But, um, you know, we we uh, kind of kidded around at Makatiwa. There was a there was one hole, uh, uh, our present number three, where uh, there used to be a casino down at the at the end of the, at the corner of the dog leg. You know, it'd be cool to call that hole casino or something like that, or the name of the casino that was down there, and. Uh, um, you know, it, it's, 
he, he probably now you'd have the, the scorecard so big, you know, <laughs> you wouldn't, and who knows if we even have scorecards in a year or two, we might be all electronic, you know, but uh, I, I, I really am a firm believer of, of naming the holes. It adds to the history and adds to the, you know, they do it at the, at the masters. Of course, we all are familiar with the names and they're all proud to name them, you know, dogwood or, or whatever the case may be. So it, it's cool. I, I will never forget. I walked up to a tea box and we were in uh, Virginia at the time I was with my dad. And one of the names of the holes was jail. And I automatically <laughs> did not want to play the hole. <laughs> and then I looked at the tee shot and I was like, yep, I'm going to be behind bars. Immediately. Well, you know, it's, it's funny because it's, it could add to the anxiety or it could add to the, to the enjoyment of the hole. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, I, why don't we do it? It's, it's just a matter of, uh, coming up with some good names but uh, i mean uh, with a name like that you can't really say you know i didn't know what the hole was going to look like there you go (laughs) yeah you know it's going to not it's not going to go well so i you know you just want to know where jail is so you can stay away from it and then you might do something (laughs) different that uh, you know (laughs) (laughs) go from right cell to left cell yeah but i'm 100 percent with you i wish i wish more courses did name them and you talk about the pictures of the scorecards and, and things like that. I think that is honestly my favorite part of the book is the pictures. I, I re- Realistically, if you're someone who doesn't even like to read and you just want to look at pictures and the captions, you can enjoy the book by just looking at the pictures. It's like there's so many, and it helps fl- make the story flow. It helps it helps with everything, and I think that leads to the chapters thing too. I think it's all just – it's like – 13 like mini books essentially like you you could read chapter 11 and not even have to worry about reading the previous 10 to even get something good out of it i'm guessing that was obviously intentional it, it's and, sure the maps. Yeah. and the maps yeah i i appreciate that tom because that's exactly what we were trying to do as is uh have it both as a kind of a reference book and as well as uh something if you wanted to read through and i've had more people talk about that and and uh one person just read the pictures or looked at the pictures going through and then went back and read the chapters after seeing the pictures. And it was a lot of work doing that because, you know, a a lot of them are on old uh, and where people might be a little disappointed is they're not Kodachrome perfect. You know, they're from 1905 or 1895 and and pictures of pictures and, and, uh, uh, you know, trying to find the originals to uh, make them as good as you could. But uh, thank goodness for, uh, uh, Apple phones now, and a couple of the other pieces of technology you can use to try to to clean them up. And our and our publisher did a great job. Gosh, they, they we there were pictures I wanted to put in that they just couldn't make it happen, and we figured out how to make it happen and had the completed the story. And uh, all compliments to them on on how they put that together. Gary, can you tell me why the Hackbarth putter was so unique? Well, if you look at, at it, uh, you know, instead of a, a single shaft coming down into the putter head, if the, the shaft would split. So it would split into two shafts, one that would go to the heel of the putter and one that would go to the toe of the putter. So basically what that did is it reduced the torque when you hit the golf ball off center. You had, you had um, you know, you, you weren't kind of rotating around a center shaft you had kind of a fork that was resisting that torque. And at least in theory, that's why they, they banned it, you know, eventually. 
but uh, good old Chick Evans, he loved it and won all of his championships using it. And, uh, and you can still find them out there on the antique market today, but uh, there's no putters. They've never, no one, no one that I know of has ever come up with a similar putter. It's would still be banned if it was used today. Just trying to wrap things up here a little bit, Phil, you could ask as many more questions as you want. No worries. Um, but I just wanted to ask, you know, I know the book's been out for a little bit now. How, how has it been received so far? What kind of, I know you just mentioned uh, some comments about the pictures, you know, what are some of the things that you're hearing from uh, people who've read it? Well, a lot of great things. And I, the, the, uh, I had, uh, one fellow who, uh, who I respect as a, as a clergyman who told me that, you know, he read one chapter twice cause he just really appreciated the story and wanted to go back and read it a little bit more in depth and uh, how it was presented and uh, for me as an engineer who's used to writing equations and, and those kind of things um english was never my strongest subject but uh, after you rewrite a chapter 50 times and uh, you, uh, you you start to figure out you don't split infinitives and do things but uh, um able to make the story uh, flow was was the big thing and uh um it was uh very heartening to hear a lot of the comments you know a lot of everybody i'm hearing that's that's read it that you know sees fit to to tell me i haven't found anybody yet challenging any any uh information which is good uh, i think my biggest fear when i sat down to write it was leaving somebody out um you know you talk about john fisher earlier i um uh, John Fisher's son, who I had review a lot of the chapters and was really helpful. And uh, I had written a chapter on uh, on amateur golfers. And he said, well, you forgot Roger McManus. And uh, I sure did. <laughs> I forgot Roger McManus. And I was able to go back and research and insert him into the chapter, probably not to the extent that he should have been. But uh, uh, there was a, a great amateur that I would have I would have lost, you know, and and uh, uh, when you're doing what I did to write the book, where you're going back and and just chasing down tournaments and chasing down results, and uh, sometimes I'd find somebody on a particular page of a sports page and say, "Wow, I forgot that guy." Uh, that that was my biggest fear was that uh, I would I would have left somebody out, and I hope I didn't. I I really hope I did. You know, uh, somebody has mentioned a couple names, but th that they won a lot of club championships and. And uh, that really wasn't the, the level that I was writing at. You know, I was looking more for people who competed at citywide or statewide or nationwide. Uh, you know, there's a lot of good good players that won 20 club championships, but you probably wanted every every course, you know, when you get down to it. And, and hopefully somebody can take it down to that next level and, and uh, uh, work on it. But... Uh, uh, the other thing with, that uh, was uh, very pleasurable for the book was was um, in researching, uh, found a young lady who won a bunch of Kentucky amateurs and and uh, uh, Northern Kentucky and and women's Mets named Margaret Jones, who was right at the tail end of the 1960 era that I was working on. And she, she kind of actually worked back in more into the 60s. But um, uh, talking to a few other people and doing research on her, 
uh, found out uh, one of the first places I always go to is the State Hall of Fame to see, you know, what their resume is and blah, blah, blah. And found out she wasn't in the Kentucky Hall of Fame. So uh, uh, with the help of uh, a couple of people locally, Ralph Landrum, uh, in particular at the World of Golf, uh, we were able to nominate her and, and have her uh, placed in, uh, in the Hall of Fame this year. So uh, which was an extra little icing on the cake for the whole project was uh, kind of righting a wrong, so to speak, <laughs> you know. That's as flattering as it gets right there, Gary. Well, you know, that was that was cool to be able to, uh, you know, again, another couple years and this, this opportunity goes by and it's and there are still people out there. You know, I would I would say to our local legends group and to our our uh, uh, Hall of Fame in northern Kentucky and the state of Kentucky and the state of Ohio, there's some people down here that, uh, you know, played in the 1920s and 30s that aren't on there and. And uh, it's like the uh, baseball hall of fame where if you get past a certain point, they, they kind of get forgotten. And hopefully this book will, will uh, bring a few of those to the fore. So. Well, if you're at the head of defending their case, I'm going to listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do have a lot of, <laughs> I do have a lot of information, but uh you know, hopefully I can keep it and get it placed somewhere. You know, that's another thing is, is getting all of this archived. You know, I've, the, I, I worry about the game is, is losing some of its uh, history. And uh, uh, which was another reason to build the book was to at least get a start point on the history. And off of, off of that, people can take a string and pull it, you know, for a certain person or a certain course and, and, uh, and maybe take a, a little bit more in depth. Well, I think what you've done here is the fact that, you know, more of the people, you know, say Tom's age and my age, we're, if we have the ability to join a course, we want to join a course with a resume. We want to join a course with a historic architect. And you have restored that and you uh -huh. have provided support for that. And, and, you know, I probably won't ever make that point. I'm probably going to be a pub links all American, but, you know, hey. it, it's just it, amazing it, to be able to read about how many awesome architects were in this area alone. Yes, I, I agree with you 100%. I mean, almost all of them, almost all the great architects, you know, there was, there was Colton and, uh, and, and some others that never did come here. So they stayed up east. But, uh, you know, for the most part, we could we, we got a, a good part of them. And it was because, again, the city was a, a big functional important city you know and which helped bring all of that there we had the weather and we had transportation working against us and we had to you know take care of both of those but uh um if you know you don't have to be a member at, at, at a place necessarily you just you get a chance to play one in a pro-am or in a in a uh, you know a member guest or whatever just seeing a different course and playing it it's uh some pretty awesome stuff. If you go from Losanoville to Makatiwa to Camargo to Western Hills to Summit Hills, you know, you see different courses and how each architect handled that, that particular piece of property. And um, that's the fun part. You know, you can do it going out of town too. You can play Pebble Beach or you, a lot of places you can go to and, and see, uh, see what an architect can do with a piece of property. And uh, um, it's amazing stuff. It's yeah. Just my final question, Gary. You know, what's 
what's next? I mean, do you have like I know you have, I have you said you have some book signings and things like that. If people want to go to one of those, do you have any of those coming up? I guess keep in mind we are recording this Monday, December sixth. Depending on when this is released, that may affect you know what what you might say. But what what what's next for the book? Well, I I, uh, I do have a couple more before Christmas. Um, I uh, uh, but they're they're going to be at uh, Kenwood Country Club and the Terrace Park Country Club. Uh, uh, just finished three of this past weekend, so uh, they're going hot and heavy right now. Uh, I think the the next time that I'm really going to be doing and saying something about that, I'm I don't know if you're familiar with the Ollie program at University of Cincinnati. It's the uh, the O L L I, but it's if you if you uh, Google that, it's it's basically a continuing learning uh, program. Uh, that's taught at uh, down at the old Edgecliff College campus, and and I believe out in Blue Ash. But they have uh, different lectures and different courses, and I'm going to be teaching a, a two and a half hour lecture on this subject, you know, on on city of Cincinnati and its history and how golf impacted that in February, February 23rd, I think. So, uh, you know, if anybody is interested in just talking about this in a little more detail and seeing some slides and and things like that. Uh, Hopefully they can come out for that. There's, they have a program of, I mean, there's coursework uh, on just about everything that you could take. I've taught golf rules there already. So it's, it's a uh, nice program. And uh, outside of that, I'll be out hawking books <laughs> for, until Father's Day. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's fun writing it. It's actually fun promoting it and selling it. And, and uh, it's been a great, you know, great experience. I, I I would wish it on to anybody that has the time, isn't changing diapers all night or doing all <laughs> doing all the things that you have to do in life. So, uh, it's been great. Yeah, we would. I I highly recommend it for sure for anybody. Like I said, even if you just like pictures, you can just look at the pictures and you, and you'll get something out of the book. Um, and again, it's Orange Fraser Press, their website, and Joseph Beth or bookstores, correct? Yeah, Joseph. Mm-hmm. Okay. Perfect. Yeah, and Brookwood is where they're located, but um, and they they might have a website also for the book. So it's but uh, hopefully anybody can get it that wants and likes the city of Cincinnati. Not just you don't have to be a golfer. It's like architecture or music or baseball or anything else. It's just sit, kind of seen through that lens. So uh, hopefully people will enjoy it. Gary, I enjoyed reading every page of it, and I'm going to read it over again especially in this uh, low season of college golfing. And I'm just I, so, ex- just so happy that you wrote the book and that I've, I've honestly, I can honestly say I've enjoyed every piece of it. So my dad's going to be the next one to read it. And I'm sure my, uh, or our former college golf coach will be the next one after that. So we're just, we're happy to get the word out and that folks, it, it really is a solid, solid book. Well, uh, those are very kind words, and uh, all I can say back is go out and make some history for the next volume. So uh, win some championships and uh, <laughs> and do what it takes. But uh, no, it it I hope it uh, really strikes a chord with uh, people across the you know the spectrum of golf and the city. Absolutely. Thanks again, Gary. Thank you. I appreciate it very much.
Hey everyone, Tom here. Thank you again for listening to this episode of the Second Shot All-American Golf Podcast. Please don't forget to like our Facebook page as well as follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SSAA Golf Pod. If you have any questions or feedback, please reach us at secondshotallamericanpod at gmail.com. And if you could, just please rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcast. And we'll see you for the next episode. Thanks, guys. Thank you.